0: Turn, please, to Isaiah forty-one. So the, this is the third week of a of a series for Advent about hope in dark times, basing ourselves in Isaiah, and and so far sticking in this the second section of Isaiah from forty to fifty-five. We haven't got very far, to be honest. Uh, the first week we did Isaiah chapter forty, and then last week we did Isaiah chapter forty-two. So. By some bizarre sequence inside my head, it seemed right this morning to go to Isaiah 41, in the middle. And the, the purpose of the series is that Advent is historically in the church a time of waiting, a time of waiting in the dark, a time of waiting for the King to come. And uh, it feels in general, in life, in humanity, in society, that we're, we're in a period of darkness, that people need hope. Uh, and that Isaiah was brilliant at bringing words of hope. These words were written to the exiles about 150 years before they got them. Isaiah wrote them down and he rolled them up and he kept them safe, gave them to his disciples, and they then passed them on when the time was right. So let's read uh, from Isaiah 41. Be silent before me, you islands. Let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. Like last week, it's an invitation. It's a, it's, it's a courtroom sort of a scene again where God is inviting the nations who do not trust in him to come and put forth what they do trust in. Verse two, who has stirred up one from the east calling him in righteousness to his service? One from the east is a king called Cyrus, who we know came, uh, took over Babylon and allowed the exiles to go back home to Jerusalem. And God's asking, who stirred him up? Who did this? Come on. He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword, to wind-blown chaff with his bow. If somebody like that is on their way to town, you're worried. Someone who who turns them to dust, who who turns them to wind-blown chaff, who subdues kings. If Cyrus is coming, people get scared. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. Who has done this and carried it through, calling forth generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he. In other words, Cyrus came, but it was God that brought him. It was God who was at work in the, in the, in the, the machinations of history and how this, this king, this ruler, worked to deliver God's people. Verse 5, the islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble, they approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. The metal worker encourages the goldsmith. And the one who smooths with the hammer, that's weird. I've never smoothed anything with a hammer. <laughs> anyway, uh, the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding, it is good. The other nails down the idol so it will not topple. We will go beyond that a bit in, in the chapter, but that's, that's where we're, where we're start, stopping for now. In Isaiah 41, at the start, God has declared what he is doing with this guy, Cyrus. He's called this one from the east who's going to come and deliver his people. And the swiftness of the movement of this king terrifies people. He turns them to dust with his sword, to windblown chaff with his bow. He pursues them and moves on unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before. He is traveling at pace, this king. And and there would have been rulers and kings at that time in history, and they would have come, and they would have taken over a nation, and they would have uh, conquered a people, and then immediately move on somewhere else, and then immediately move on somewhere else. There's a great quote about Alexander the Great. I'm not sure where it comes from or how accurate it is, but it goes something along the lines of, when Alexander looked at the breadth of his domain, he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. These guys just moved from place to place and took over. And they moved with a, with a pace and a speed that struck fear into people. And one of the things that has gone on in our world in the last couple of years and probably in a lot of our lives individually and personally, is disappointment, discouragement, and disaster coming at an unprecedented pace. This word unprecedented has become the buzzword of the last three or four years. Where you you don't have time, you're still dealing with one disappointment, or one discouragement, or one disaster, and another one comes. There's no break in between. There's no sort of period of, right, we have dealt with this and then a few years of, of quietness and then we deal with that. Globally, while we are still reeling from COVID, another disaster comes in the form of a war. And then another crisis follows that in the, in the form of the, the cost of living crisis. One thing after another, relentless speed, like one of these ancient kings coming across the land Just moving at pace, conquering and conquering relentlessly, ruthlessly. That's a bit like what the world has been this past few years. Just one thing after another with no time to recover in between. And individually, that's globally. Individually, you might feel that as well. Many of us over the past few years, you might feel like you've lurched from one disappointment or discouragement or disaster or crisis to another, and you just wish you could have a year or two off. You know? And Whether it's a small thing, it's not, you know, calling it a, a disaster might be a big word. Maybe it's just challenges in work and you deal with one and then immediately another one comes. It could be relational. It could be financial. It could be something in family. It could be something in health. It could be grief. But there just seems to be no recovery time between one crisis and the next one. You're like, I've just dealt with that. Give me six months to catch my breath, and then you can bring another crisis. But, but it doesn't seem to be like that for a lot of us. One thing just comes upon another. And another word that has been used an awful lot lately, as well as that word unprecedented, is the word crisis. You get that daily in the newspaper, on the news. Crisis has become another very common word. And I looked it up to see what, you know, what the, I love the the background of a word. I like to, I love to know where has it come from? How was it used hundreds of years ago in different languages? How did it come to, to be what it is now? And I was surprised to find, this just shows my ignorance probably, but it's actually a medical term, crisis. And in the, in the world of medicine, a crisis is a sudden intensification of symptoms in the course of a disease. So somebody's already unwell, and then they hit a point which is medically described as crisis when everything just ramps up and gets worse. Crisis. And it actually comes from a Greek word, and the Greek word is crisis, and it means decision. It's like a turning point. The nations in these verses are in a crisis, and crisis leads to fear. In verse 5, the islands have seen it. They've seen Cyrus coming. These are the nations. These are not God's people. They have seen Cyrus coming, and they are in fear. The ends of the earth are trembling at what is coming, and fear comes to us all. Whenever, you know, think about fear. Whenever you're a child, you're scared of things that aren't there. Monsters and and the boogeyman and whatever. And whenever you're an adult, you're scared of things that are there. Bills and health reports and and whatever. And any time that we go through a season of crisis, intensification of, of whatever we're going through, fear can very quickly creep in after that. Mark Sayers, who have quoted a lot over the past couple of years, says uh, on the back of his most recent book, crisis is a great revealer. It knocks us off our thrones. It uncovers the weaknesses in our strategies and brings to light our myths and idols. We're going to look a wee bit at idols as we go on. Crisis is a great revealer. Our past strategies run aground Smashed by unpredictable and chaotic waves. Now that's the last three or four years. Unpredictable and chaotic waves. Bang, a wave comes and crashes in. And then another one, and then another one. And the strategies, the coping mechanisms that serve us, don't serve us anymore. We need to do something different. And whenever crisis and fear comes, there are are two options that come with it. I've lost my first option. There's my first option. Let me read verses 5, 6, and 7 from from 41. The islands have seen it in fear. The ends of the earth tremble. Now, here's the the wrong option when crisis comes. They approach and come forward. They help each other and say to their companions, be strong. So the picture is two people who do not trust God trying to encourage one another. You You know, chin up take a deep breath, you'll be all right, you'll be fine, chill, come on, it's grand, be strong, we're going to make it. And then they go on and they say, the metal worker encourages the goldsmith, the one who smooths with the hammer spurs on the one who strikes the anvil. One says of the welding it is good, the other nails down the idol so it will not topple. Option one in crisis and fear is to increase production in the idol factories. And that's what these nations would have done. The fear of what was coming upon them was so strong that they would go into this frenzy of making new idols. And it's madness and God mocks it. And I love it when God mocks stuff in the Bible. You're allowed to sort of laugh or smile as he mocks his enemies, as he mocks idolatry, which is what he does in this section of Isaiah But don't we do this sometimes? When crisis comes, we start to reach out for things to lean on other than God. And that's surely where a lot of addictions come from, when people can't cope with the pressure and they start leaning on other things in order to try to prop them up. They give one another false, empty encouragement. They say to each other to be strong, but they are absolutely weak. And they're terrified, and we have this this talk of how the, the the different workmen, the different craftsmen, work together in order to produce an idol, and it's it's utterly crazy. And as I thought about this and thought about Isaiah, I thought about my block of wood. Do you have a block of wood? Anyone? Yeah. Yes, a block of wood, and. Uh, this block of wood, as you can see from the marks on the top of it, is used to split other blocks of wood. All right? So you put your, blo- your, your wee block that you want to split for the fire onto the top and you whack it with the axe. That's my block of wood. And as I was thinking about this message, I thought about my block of wood. And I thought about these guys making their idols. And the scene would be something like this. At the end of a difficult year, for, for various reasons, I would go to my family, my children, and my lovely wife and say... It's been a difficult year, but behold, I have found a block of wood. It's in the garage. I have found it. It will be our God. We will worship the block of wood. In fact, we will bow down to it, and it will get us through this difficult time that we're living in. This is the sort of stuff that was going on in Isaiah, and this is what he is mocking. He goes on to to do it further in, uh, in chapter well, in forty-one 41.7, they, they start off with their block of wood and then basically they say, well, it's not shiny enough to get us through the current crisis. Things were bad. Things have got worse. We need a shinier idol. So they call the goldsmith to come. And then a wee bit further down the verse, they try to stand it up. Like when you were a kid and you had your Star Wars figure or your action man or whatever, and the thing just wouldn't stand up and you would adjust the feet to try and get it to stand and it wouldn't stand... They've made their idol and they try to, to put it upright and it won't stand up. And they start to encourage each other and say, no, get the hammer, get the nails. If this thing's going to save us, it has to be able to stand up on its feet. And the detail is exhausting because making idols is exhausting. It does not support you. It does not help you. It only tires you out because you're constantly tweaking. You're constantly trying to develop the idol in order to match whatever crisis that you're going through. In Isaiah 44, he goes on and he talks about how people go out to the forest and they cut down a tree. In verse 14, they get their block of wood. It's used as fuel for burning. Anybody got the fire lit this morning before they left the house or planning to this afternoon? They get this block of wood and some of it, you take it and you warm yourself. You kindle a fire. You bake some bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire. Over he prepares his meal. And then in verse 17, from the rest he makes a god. This is me going out to the garage and finding my beloved block in the garage and saying, right children, we're going to cut it in half, we're going to put half of it in the fire to keep you warm today, and the other half we're going to carve into an idol and worship it, and it's going to get us through whatever crisis we're going through. Half of it I used for fuel, shall I bow down, verse 19, to a block of wood. (laughs) The madness of idolatry. But idolatry in our day is very subtle. The things we lean on are never blocks of wood and they're never metal statues and they're never something that somebody would look at and say, oh, that's an idol. But invite the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of your heart as we sang. What are the things that we lean on? Do we lean on ourselves and our own abilities and our own stamina our own determination do we lean on others around us and and expect too much of them do we lean on money do we lean on a job a role what are the things that we that we go to for support whenever fear is creeping in and back to chapter 42 whenever these guys make their idol look at what they say about it which if you, you're familiar with the scriptures and you see somebody making something and then declaring it is good, you'll think back to Genesis 1 and the creator God, seven days, six days that he, that he created and at the end of, of, of all but one of them, which was actually Monday, he said it is good. He said it twice on one of the days. He said it is very good whenever he made man on on the sixth day. God saw all that he had made and he summarized it. He said it was very good. And now we have man making an idol to worship. You see the irony of it. God has created man in his image. And now man makes an idol that he's going to bow down to and declares the idol to be good. And all the while God is, is laughing at what these people do. The other option that we have, option number one, whenever fear comes, is to increase the production in our idol factories to make things to lean on. The other option is to trust God. There are only two options. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Whatever you do will fall into one of those two options. Either you will trust God or you will choose to place your trust somewhere else. In this case, idols. Idols. And what God does as he invites them to trust him in verse 8 is look, look at how, how he reminds them of who they are in him, of how he views them. He's now talking not to the nations but to his people Israel and he refers to them as my servant, the one whom I have chosen my friend. You see all the personal, intimate connections between God and his people. And in the, in the following verse, verse nine, I took you. I called you. You're my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. It's all about God's initiative. It's all about God's work, God's personal intimacy with his people. And then you have this stunning verse, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do not fear, do not be dismayed. Now we know what fear is and we've talked about fear. Dismay, that's a weird word. It's one of those words that you use and you read and then if, you're, if you sort of think to yourself, how would I define that? You'd be like, hmm, I don't really know. But God says to his people, don't be dismayed. Now, here we go again. Apparently, may, M-A-Y, the word may, comes from a German word, which means to have the power to do something, the potential to do it. And then we use it in English and we say something may happen. There is a possibility that it may happen. It might happen. There is the potential there for it to happen. There is the possibility for it to happen. Dismay means then no par, no possibility. This thing cannot happen, no hope. To be dismayed is to have no hope for the future, no hope. As I walk about the town, one of the things that I think to myself a lot is do these people... Like I bumped into to a guy, a kid, well, he's a young man now, a couple of weeks ago and I was chatting to him and it's probably the first time I've been chatting to him in about a year and in, in between he's done time <laughs> in prison and he's lost his job. And I think to myself for these people, have they any hope that life could be better than it is now? Because now it's pretty bad. Is there any sense within them that in the future it could be better? Or are they dismayed? Have they no hope? No hope. The dictionary defines dismay as concern and distress caused by something unexpected. How many things could each of us list? And how many things can planet Earth list in the past few years unexpected, but have caused concern and distress? And God says to his people, do not fear do not be dismayed. How on earth, those are commands. How on earth do we obey those? How, how do we, if we're fearful because Cyrus is coming, because of the pace of, of relentless discouragement and disappointment, how do we not be fearful? And if we're dismayed, if we're losing hope, how do we regain hope again? And the answer to both of those in verse 10 is, I am. Yahweh God's not you know his own name that he reveals himself to Moses with in Exodus 3 I am has sent you we overcome fear by knowing that I am is with us I guarantee you when you were a kid and you were scared of the dark when there was an adult with you all fear left if you didn't want to go upstairs or down to the dark end of the house where your room was or wherever, if you were scared of the dark and you didn't want to do that, as soon as somebody went with you, no more fear. Because that's what the presence of another person does. The presence of one who is stronger, older, wiser, whatever. Someone who has a torch. You know? that, that's what it does. And God says, do not fear because I am is with you. Not just your mate, your older brother, your mom or dad. I am. Yahweh is with you. And that's why you do not need to be afraid. And that's the promise that God gives to his people over and over again. Isaac got it and Joseph got it and Moses got it and Joshua got it and we get it. It over and over again is the promise that caused people to step out and do the things that they did. They were maybe hesitant. They weren't sure. They were like, we can't do this. We are weak. And the thing that God said every time and the thing that Jesus said to his disciples was, I will be with you. And whenever God's people heard that, then their response was, okay, let's go. That was always the deal breaker, the presence of God with his people. So we overcome fear by knowing that I am is with us. And we overcome dismay. Remember, dismay means no hope for the future, no sense of of potential or possibility that anything can be any better than it is now. And for a lot of us here, we're quite comfortable and things right now are, are pretty good. But for a lot of people in our community, things right now are horrendous and there is no sniff of a ghost of a chance that they're going to get any better. No hope. Dismay. For, the, for God's people who are dismayed, the promise is, I am your God. The false gods of the nations that are reeling in fear at, what, at what's going on, those false gods are blocks of wood. Whereas for God's people, their God is Yahweh, is I am, is the creator. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. And then three promises come still in this cracker verse. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you remember the wobbly idols That the the manufacturers had to sort of, you know, once they tried to get it to stand up, it kept falling over and they had to nail it down. God says, no, 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 not like that with me. These people are trying to build an idol. The idol can't stand up and they're trying to lean on something that can't even stand up. And God says, no, with you, with you, my people, I'll hold you up. It's not that I'm just going to give you something steady to lean on. I'm actually going to steady you. I'm going to hold you up. And in the the verses after, God talks about how their enemies will disappear. All who rage against you will be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing. Though you search for your enemies, you'll not find them. They'll be gone. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. is another thing we do for children. And we do it so instinctively we don't even think about it. Whenever we're about to cross a road or or anything that's remotely, you know, has potential for danger, the hand goes out and you grab hold of them. God does that for us. He says, do not fear, I will help you. The enemies disappear. And I can't help but think of Jesus, who when that woman was brought to him, caught in adultery, after he had bowed down and, you know, written on the ground whenever he straightened up again, he said to her, you know, these religious guys standing by with the stones ready to destroy her. He said to her, where are they? He looked around and the enemies were gone. The last few verses that I want to look at this morning, verse 14. I wonder what terms you use for the Special people in your life, you know what little cute phrases or, or whatever do you do you have for for those that you love, you know, sweetie and pet and whatever. In Isaiah forty one fourteen, God calls His beloved people worms. <laughs> isn't that encouraging? Do not be afraid, you worm. Lovely, isn't it? In the New Testament, it's a wee bit better. We're sheep. <laughs> Uh, stupid and smelly and prone to all sorts of diseases and dangers. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's, it's worse. We're, we're worms. What does that mean? Um, it's not a derogatory term. It is God letting us know what we already know about ourselves. We are weak and we are feeble and we are downtrodden and we can't progress very far on our own. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob. Little Israel, do not fear. I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, you see what God's going to do with this worm. A worm moves a small amount of earth over the course of its life. God says to his people, you feel like a worm. You're downtrodden. You're weak. You're small. You are neglected and seen as being of no value. But he says to them, see... I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. I don't have a threshing sledge, and you probably don't either. But it basically would have been a a heavy piece of wood, maybe like a pallet, you know, before somebody pulled it apart and made a nice wall of it, a a sort of pallet shape with with a rope on it. And on the underside of it, there would have been stones and sharp objects driven into the wood, And then an animal would have dragged it about and it would have threshed grain underneath it or it would have broken up some hard ground. That's what a threshing sledge was. If you had, you know, if you had an uneven ground with a few bumps and rises, if you drag the threshing sledge around about it, it'll break out the bumps and it'll level it out. And God says, I'm going to make you into a threshing sledge and you will thresh the mountains. (laughs) Not just little bumps here and there, but you're going to thresh the mountains. And you imagine role play. You're a worm and you're beside a mountain. And you think about the amount of earth that you can shift in a day doing your worm thing under the ground. And God says, I'm going to transform you and you're going to shift this mountain. I'm going to turn you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. God doesn't take the mountains away. God transforms us so that we can thresh the mountains. I can't help but think of Toblerone. <laughs> You're going to eat the mountains. I actually shared this prophetically with a guy a few weeks ago at a, at a, a gathering of church leaders. Stefan was there as well. And, and as I prayer for this guy who was, coming to a change in his ministry, I saw a picture in my mind of a Toblerone. And I thought, what on earth am I going to tell this guy about the Toblerone? Um, And I started to to talk about, I I see a Toblerone and there's this little ripple of laughter around the group, you know, and Chris Leach was there and he says, oh, I love chocolatey prophetic words. And, uh, but as I started to pray, then these verses came to mind about the worm that eats the mountains. And I I prayed over this guy and I said, you know, he's going to be embarking on a new sort of pioneering ministry. And I said to him, you know, you're going to face lots and lots of mountains, but you're going to eat them. And as you eat them and as those mountains are, are dealt with, those who are coming behind you won't have to deal with the mountain because it'll not be there anymore. You'll have dealt with it. That's what God's going to do with you. He's going to make you into that threshing sledge that moves mountains that others can then follow you at speed. But that's, that's, that's the word God has for us. We don't go over the mountain, round the mountain, under the mountain. We thresh the mountain. He wants us to destroy the mountains that are before us. And the question then is, what are the mountains? You will thresh the mountains. And my tendency, and probably yours instinctively, is to personalize this and think about the obstacles in our own lives. And I think that's entirely fine don't think there's anything wrong with that uh, at all for a moment. But I want to just now remain in the context of Isaiah and think, what are the mountains that he might be talking about? The last time we heard about mountains in Isaiah, this is chapter 41. In chapter 40, at the start, we have the passage that is quoted regarding John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness." And we read that every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, threshed, flattened. And the reason for wanting the mountains to be made low and the rough ground to become level is so that the glory of the Lord will be revealed. If you remember back to that first week of Advent, the, the, the king is coming. And when the king is coming, you have to prepare a way for him. And one of the things that that Isaiah says that in terms of preparing a way for this king, because this is not like any ordinary king, is that the mountains need to be made low. And anyone reading Isaiah might well have thought to themselves, well, how are the mountains going to be made low? And you get to chapter 41 and you find God saying basically, my people will do it. I'm going to make my people, my little insignificant worms as they are looked upon, I'm going to make them into mighty threshing sledges that will shift the mountains so that the glory of the Lord can be revealed. The King wants to come. The King wants to come. In Advent, the King wants to come. And He wants to come not only into our own lives and into our hearts, but into our community. And there are mountains that need to be threshed in order to make a way for the king to come. And God says, I will use my people. I will use Jacob, the worm, to thresh the mountains. There are mountains in this community. There are mountains in in your community, if you're from a different one, that need to be moved so that the glory of the Lord can be revealed. And the mountain could be abuse, it could be poverty, and it could be addiction, it could be grief, it could be loneliness, and it could be Satanism and witchcraft. But there are mountains that need to be removed so that the glory of the Lord can be revealed. And what God basically wants to do is turn this into this. Worms into wrecking balls that can destroy and shift out of the way the things that hold back the revelation of the glory of God in a community, in a town. And again, as we saw before in Isaiah, it is only in our weakness that this will happen. It is only when we realize how weak and how feeble and how frail we are that God's strength can then come in and and, and strengthen us to do what he wants us to do. There's a lovely line in a song by, by Mumford and Sons. I, I like listening to songwriters who whether or not they are Christians themselves, if they were, grew up in a Christian background, I love listening to their music because you can hear their upbringing coming through their music. And, and Mumford and Sons would be quite a, a, a strong example of that. And there's a wee line in a song called "Ditmus that says, where I used to end is where you start." And I don't know what the context was that he wrote that in, but God speaks to me through that. When I come to an end of myself and my own resources and my own strength, God basically says, great, I've got you where I need you to be. I can now start. But as long as you're relying on your own strength and your own idols, I can't do anything with you. Whenever I come to an end, that's when he starts. The last few verses, just to read them for encouragement and not much more. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Again, you know, we've been walking around Belfast a lot this last couple of days. And I tend to, people watch, I tend to stare into people's faces and into their eyes, not in a freaky way, (laughs) but just, just looking and wondering, what's your story? What have you come from today? What will you go back home to tonight? When I look at the 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 young people, you know those sort of there's, there's bound to be a collective noun for them, you know, herds, flocks of teenagers that you see around Belfast on a Saturday afternoon, all all wearing the same jackets and, and just sort of you just you get a wee flock of six and then you go a bit further and there's another herd of fifteen and they're all just moving around, marking their territories or whatever. And uh, I look at them and I wonder what's Sometimes your initial feeling is you're, just, you're a bit irritated by them because they're very loud and they're jumping around and going half mad. And then you just think, I wonder what your story is. I wonder what happened in your house last night. I wonder what will happen in your house tonight. Will you even go home to your house tonight? Or will you go somewhere else? The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst, but I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make, this is a lovely verse. Look at all the watery imagery here. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. I've been praying that a lot. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. And then all that water will cause fruitfulness. I will put in the desert the cedar and the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together. Hope of streams of rivers in the wasteland. This is a wee band that gets a lot of airplay in our house. Need to breathe. If you've never listened to them, get on with it. Stop wasting your life. But one of their albums a few years ago was called Rivers in the Wasteland based on this passage of, of Isaiah. And the first song, there's a line in it. In this wasteland where I'm living, there is a crack in the door filled with light. There's a glimmer of hope. Just a crack. You have to look carefully to see it and to find it in the barren wasteland that we're living in. Streams, rivers, rivers breaking forth in the wasteland. Isaiah 40, a couple of weeks ago, ended with the promise that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. And you might not have noticed it, but Isaiah 41 begins with God saying, right, let's see how you renew your strength, nations. You who don't trust in me, show me what you've got. I will renew the strength of my people. How will you renew yours? And whenever crisis comes, we have two options. And one of them is not even an option because it's a disaster. But we can either put our hope and our trust in God, who promises to hold us up with his right hand, or we can wear ourselves out building and tweaking and refining and polishing our idols that can't actually support anything. And I just want to finish with another quote from, from Mark Sayers about crisis. He says, in the midst of the chaos of a crisis comes opportunity. The history of the church tells us that crisis always precedes renewal. I listen to this guy quite a lot on podcasts, and I think (laughs) that last phrase, I think he's used that nearly every single time I've listened to him. He just tucks it in everywhere. Crisis precedes renewal. We are in a world that is in utter crisis there is no point in trying to polish it you just find yourself wondering what will the next huge wave in this world be after the chaos of brexit and covid and war ongoing easily forgotten about but ongoing and the cost of living And you're just wondering what wave is going to crash onto the shore next. But in these times of crisis, if God's people will choose to seek him and to turn to him and to trust him, then renewal can come. In fact, in his, not his most recent book, but the one beforehand, a book called Reappearing Church, he tells um in, a, in a, again in a podcast after he wrote the book and he includes a section in the book about crisis after he wrote the book he was in a car with Pete Gregg uh driving to some event somewhere that both of them were speaking at and I'm not quoting him now so hopefully I'll not mess this up but he basically said to Pete Gregg we've got everything we need for the renewal of the church except a crisis Everything else is in place. He's studied history and what happens in these great renewal movements. And before all of them, he says there is a crisis in society. There is a crisis in the world. And he, and he was saying to Pete Gregg in the back of his car, I don't know what's going on, but what we need, not that he was asking for it, but the, the last thing is, is we need a crisis. And that, that conversation was about two or three months before COVID hit and just shook everything. But crisis precedes renewal. We are living in a time of tremendous crisis and massive opportunity to show this world that leans on wobbly idols, to show them the glory of God and what it means to be upheld by him. Father, thank you for your word of encouragement again from Isaiah. Lord, I pray in this time of crisis that your church will turn to you that we will not find ourselves running ourselves ragged in idle factories, making things to lean on. But Lord, that we will reach out and that we will trust in you, that we will not be afraid because you are with us and that we will not be dismayed or hopeless about the future because you are our God. Thank you, Father, for the strength that you give us. Thank you for the help that you give us Thank you that you hold us up, Lord. Father, I just ask that we will not miss in these years that we're living in this tumultuous time on the earth, the like of which has not been seen for generations, that we will not miss the opportunity to cry out to you for renewal, that your church will not sleep through this, Lord. Please awaken our our hearts, our spirits, to cry out to you for, for rivers in the wasteland, for glimmers of hope to come in these dark times that we're living in, Lord. And Fathers, we worship you. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move in this place and bring further strength and encouragement to your people. In Jesus' name, amen.